0: Hello and welcome to this, the latest TES International Podcast. My name is Ed Dorrell and I'm Head of Content here at the TES. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Stefan Sommer, who is Principal of Doha College and Vice Chair of COBIS, the Council of British Independent Schools. Stefan, could you start by telling me a little bit of background on how you wound to be wound up sitting in that very large office in Doha, please?
1: Well, uh, thank you very much, Ed, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's a pleasure pleasure to be here. Well, I've been the principal of Dover College for five years. I started in 2015. It's my fourth headship uh, of a British international school. I started my career in education in 1993 at rugby school, uh, had a lovely time there, and um, um, I, had quite a, um, I was there for 10 years and had a uh, had a very good career. Uh, ended up as a in a boarding house as a housemaster. Was a head of the language faculty. My next career move was then to be deputy head at Sutton Valley School in Kent, a very large boarding school, very old as well, almost as old as Rugby School actually. A very large boarding school in Kent, um, in the um, in the Garden of England. Uh, had a very successful time uh, there too. And from there, I started my first headship internationally, and that was at the British School in the Netherlands. Um, I was there for a fair number of years. Moved on to the British School of Paris, where I was the headmaster for, um, again, a fair number of years, and uh, from there I went to Switzerland to run Coeur uh, des a, a challenge in two ways, I chose it deliberately because I joined, it's a, uh, the school is part of Nord Anglia Education, um, um, and I chose deliberately to be part of a profit-making um, organization because... Um, I believe, as in my role as vice chair of COBUS, the Council of British National Schools, that the future of British international education um, as uh, an independent education is really within uh, a profit-making setup. Because schools like Doha College, yep. like yep. Dubai College and Al-Qubarak, of course, they're linked to embassies, and in the future, I don't think embassies um, will... Uh, have the money to set up a school and um, uh, and make sure they keep that school going although the schools would be charging fees and are reasonably dependent it's still there's still a, a up cost which i don't think would be uh, would be feasible in the future so that was a an interesting experience and from there um, i came to doha college which again as i've just said is the british international school linked to the british embassy
0: not-for-profit and is running like a british school in the uk how many headships is that now in total that's four That's four. Not bad going, eh? Not bad going. Um, And what's significantly different about Doha to um, running schools in Europe? Oh, um,
1: uh, let me start with the similarities. It is always very interesting. I'm a linguist, you know. And um, British international schools have a lot in common uh, in the way they're uh, in the way they're set up. We're all running the British model of education: GCSE, IGCSE, and A-level, often the IB as well. Which, of course, is also uh, quite popular in the United Kingdom and the British international schools. Um, we um, uh, Our students are also very similar, with a lot of them very often British and a lot of them international. That makes a very international mix, whether that's in Paris, in The Hague, or here in Doha, it gives a very international flair, and yet, yet the school is very much recognizable as a British school, very much like in the UK. There's nothing here. Uh, as far as your daily life as a teacher is concerned, or indeed as a student, which is different from a school um, in the UK. Yet the additional skills that the students and the teachers pick up um, uh, via the international community, and most importantly, the soft skills, the um, adaptability, um, the knowledge of of other cultures, the sensitivities to other ways of thinking, other approaches to problem solving, add a level of... Uh, soft education to the students that shouldn't surprise us, make them very, very popular at top-end universities, not only in the UK, but also internationally. So that's what we have in common. And there are differences, of course, as well, and these differences are mainly to do with the operational functioning of the schools in their, um, uh, social, in, in, in their set, political setting where they are. You know, while in Europe, uh, we're all different countries speaking different languages and all the rest of it, and Britain have just voted to come out of Europe. But the mm-hmm. fact is, because so far, certainly while I worked in Europe, all these countries were European countries. And therefore, although the British system is very different from the European systems, be it in France, be it in Holland or elsewhere, there were a lot of similarities as far as the laws concerned. There was certain security. There was an understanding. You know exactly what's right, what's wrong. You know exactly when things didn't quite work out. There were policies, there were procedures, there was a legal framework. And that is the way it would be applied. Now, that's very different in the Middle East. In the Middle East, um, there are, of course, laws. There's a lot of bureaucracy. In fact, it reminds me very much of my early childhood when I lived in Russia, uh, bureaucracy seems to be everything here. The amount of paper that's being filled here on a daily basis is quite extraordinary and that and yet when you're looking for one, they send, uh, spend, uh, spend easily days or weeks finding the sheet of paper. Uh, but it's, that, is just, that is just the way it is. Uh, and that adds a level of complication to uh, being a principal, being the person responsible not only for the educational delivery, of what's happening in a British international school here, but also in the way it's embedded in the political framework in the country it is. In the Middle East, and my colleagues, well, Mark and al Kabara in Abu Dhabi, but also um, be it Michael or others in, uh, in Dubai or in Bahrain would say exactly the same. It all depends on relationships. And these relationships take time to form, to build. And uh, while we are British international schools, linked to embassies and being very British, fact is we're not living in a vacuum. We are not dependent on the ministries of education, but they do have a far reach and they do affect us. And we do have to form relationships that are workable and uh, that rest on a very firm and mutual understanding and mutual respect. And I reiterate that mutual respect. And that has nothing to do whether we agree what their decisions are. It's to do with respecting what they are and making them work somehow.
0: Absolutely. Now, being a journalist, I can't let you get away with briefly referencing growing up in Russia without um, asking you in just a minute or two to explain uh, your early life.
1: Well, it's uh, it's maybe a bit unusual, but I'm quite proud of it because I think that is a reason why um, I think it's not too bold to say I've been reasonably successful in running British international schools because my life hasn't been very very different. I've I've I've, 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 I've I'm a third culture kid as well. Uh, My parents were expats. Uh, They're long retired now, but um, uh, I grew up in Russia. Uh, My dad worked there as an engineer uh, for many years initially, very much like many parents here at our schools. Initially for one year, it ended up to be 17 years. Um, My entire schooling uh, from primary um, up until the end of week, what is for us GCSEs, in Russia it isn't, but up to GCSEs, I was there. Uh, every day of my life, that I was fully integrated, and of course it was a different time when there were no British international schools. You know, I'm yeah. um, I'm getting on in age now, but in those uh, in in those days there were no British international schools. I couldn't just go to one of those schools. So I had to go to local schools, but it was also good because it's so much languages. Era. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I picked up a number of languages because, of course, uh, in the Soviet Union, it was not only Russian that was spoken, you know, there's Azerbaijani, there's Ukrainian, um, um, Tajik, you know, I I picked up these languages because I had to go to those schools.
0: Okay. And then how did you wind up in rugby?
1: Well, it's, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, don't forget, I uh, lived my young life on the other side of what was then the Iron Curtain. Many of our students don't even remember that there ever was an Iron Curtain. They only <laughs> read it from a history, history book. I remember it very vividly. Um, when the um, uh, we, when we left Russia, we relocated to Germany, uh, East Germany at the time. And um, yeah, when the war came down, only, um, i had only, I had completed my A-levels and I had just completed the army. And don't forget after, a-levels, or what the, what's, the, what's the equivalent of A-levels at the time um, in Europe, I, or in Germany, rather. Um, I uh, had to join the army. It was a conscription army at the time, um, and uh, do my army service. And because I spent so many years in Russia, in fact, in those days, the bulk of my life, I had to join the Soviet army, which I did, for five years. <laughs> and after That's that, I left, the, I left the army in 1988. And in 1989, the war came down.
0: So uh, I can see the headline now from Red Army to running international schools. Well,
1: and it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be the fir- it wouldn't be the first time that headline's been used, but it's a it's it's a bit unusual. But it's just the way uh, it's just the way it is, and in a way, it's quite fortuitous. I do believe that I ended up the person I am uh, because of the life I've had, and that was of course of circumstances. I just happened to be in these places when this, um, um, uh, when this happened. Uh, and after the war came down, I, um, I left. I, I worked in France first and eventually ended up in the United Kingdom.
0: It is amazing, it is amazing. Now on slightly less prosaic things. Um, the challenges of running international schools uh, around the world do vary of course. Um, but one of the issues that comes up time and time again is recruit- recruiting and retaining uh, teachers. Um, is that something that you struggle with in Doha at your school, or um, is it relatively it is,
1: easy? I'm very, I'm very much and you are uh, you're hitting the nail on the head there. It is a grave concern, and very much in all of our minds as heads of British international schools, and actually a main focus of CobiS, the Council of British International Schools, in the most amazing research they've been doing uh, of British teachers internationally and the um, amazing answers that they've come up with. Because we all know, of course, that we are all drawing on one pool, and that is teachers who are, um, who've been trained back in the UK. Fact is, and I'm, I don't think I'm telling you any news here, um, there uh, are now uh, well over a 1,000 British international schools. They're not all COBUS members, but the fact is they're all looking for British-trained teachers. Yeah. Um, the British market, teachers that are trained back in the UK, that are, of course, mainly trained for the British market. And yet there's us draining uh, that market now. And of course, there are very, and you will know that from the DfE, there are very reproachful voices coming from there saying, oh, well, you're, you're taking all our teachers, there's nothing coming back. But I firmly believe this is not quite the case. We are fully aware of the problem and we want to be part of the solution including Doha College, including Al-Khibarat, including Dubai College. We want to be part of the solution. COBIS came up with the most amazing idea and gave us the possibility to become uh, COBIS training schools, which my school has done. We are a COBIS training school. And uh, I can talk to you in more detail if you're interested, if it fits into this podcast. But the main focus of the training schools is one thing is training teachers and training teachers without draining the market back in the UK because we wanted to, and I've, I've been the protagonist in that, by proving to the DfE, no, we are not out here and draining all your good teachers who incidentally, according to our research, are not leaving the UK because, oh well, let's just try abroad. They're leaving the UK because they're disillusioned, they're dissatisfied, they're underpaid, they're undervalued, and they come to they come to the international market because they're nice packages in nice locations <laughs> with no end of opportunity, with no end of opportunities to travel. And all that. that is just the outcome. That is I'm not making this up. This is the the clear outcome of the research of Hundreds, in fact, over a 1,000 teachers yeah. who replied to, the, replied to the survey. But we also want to be fair to our homeland, to the, to the UK. We don't want to be seen as the culprit, training their teachers, and there's the nobody left to teach the students back in the UK, for that's not fair. So the DfE have been very proactive in responding to us. So what is now happening, of course, as a training school, we can train our own teachers. And mm-hmm. they're not coming from the UK. Well, they might as people be coming from the UK, but they would be tra- um, 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 uh, training spouses. They would be people naturally with degrees, sometimes high-flying degrees, doctorates and so forth. Uh, people who formerly worked at universities in research. People who worked in, uh, in the oil industry who've got very good degrees. And who decide, well, actually, my spouse is working here, that's why I'm here. Rather than sitting at home bored twiddling, uh, twiddling my thumbs, I've got a brain in my head. Why did I train as a teacher and become part of these hubs? Because that is another feature of Bridge International Schools, um, owing to the very situation which we are in we are hubs we're not just schools we are community centers yes. not just for the students but also for their families for their parents and very much those parents welcome us putting something on that allows them to be part of this community because often is it not is not easy when you're here in the uh, in, uh, in in Qatar or in the UAE and you don't speak arabic there's just uh, 80% of the normal job market is not available to
0: you yes of course absolutely um, tell me, and about. These we, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, tell me about the challenges of providing professional development in your context. Oh, uh,
1: the professional development is particularly at, uh, at Doha College, is very high indeed. Uh, in fact, in all the schools that I ran in the past, we have recently, we have a development plan every year, three year development plan. We are now, since I've been at Doha College, in the second one. And we have only just launched this September our. Education Innovation Forum, um, which is actually, to put it in, it it, it is called that for reasons to do with the political setup here in Qatar. But that is, um, uh, I've got one of my vice principals in charge of that uh, within the portfolio. That is, in in, put it in in, in layman's terms, a CPD academy. And we offer with it NQT training. We offer leadership training, aspiring middle leaders. We do an accredited... um, uh, a Cobis Middle Leaders Course, the CP the CPML. We do the Cobis um, uh, Aspiring head Course, accredited. Mm-hmm. Our staff, my my senior leaders in my team, myself included, are teaching that, and the participants are getting an accredited uh, certificate that they've done this in order to further their careers. But we also have another module, which is to. Uh, to train uh, high-performing teachers. Doha College is the first high-performance learning school in the world. They're now about 70, but we were, the, we were the first one, which is the philosophy of education, very much like it is for Montessori schools or for yeah. Steiner schools. And we are a high-performance learning school. And that works well because, you know, we have over 65% A-stars at GCSE and 60% A-stars at A-level. In a school, these Bridge International Schools, Ed, are... Also, social experiments. And yes. what I mean by that is um, what I mean by that is we are state schools as far as our composition of students are concerned. Very, a very low percentage of my parents are privately educated. They would never, ever, ever have even remotely thought of private education in the UK for their children. But here, the, we are a private school, we are a fee-paying school, but the employers, by and large, pay the fees. So the parents' understanding is like we are a state school, we are a school, and that's where they're sending their, their, their children to. But, of course, because we are a fee-paying school and we are collecting fees, we are running like an independent school, like a private school, and yeah. with it come all the facilities yeah. and all the possibilities that come with it. So, in a way, British international schools uh, give the proof that if state school children in the UK had the facilities and the yes and the funds that are available generally in private schools, they would do equally well. <laughs> what no? Well, it, that's a that's a fact. And it, that I am absolutely con- Especially if they are high performance learning schools, where we believe that all school all children have, can and will do a top grade, will get one of the top three grades.
0: And the risk of uh, risk of being. Um... Just allowing you another chance to uh, talk freely about your school. It is in large part comprehensive. Is there an entrance exam?
1: There is. Well, no, there isn't an entrance exam. There used to be uh, before I came. There isn't an entrance exam, but there is an admissions test. And that is only to do with the fact that we are so popular. We have such long waiting lists. We have to have a way of selecting who comes in and he doesn't and who doesn't. And rather than saying first come first serve, because don't forget, we are an independent school and we have to make sure we survive in a foreign climate. So therefore, yes, we select, um, uh, but not on academic ability. There is an admissions test to make sure that, that the child fits into this community and also um, has an ability to serve this community.
0: Um, just talk very briefly about safeguarding, which is an issue that comes up time and again when you speak to international. Yes. Um, the circumstances in Doha are presumably different in a way that it's different in every country. Yes,
1: oh very much so. It, it, although it's it's not widely known. Um, in the years that I've been here, I I learned Arabic reasonably well, so I do understand what's going on. And I don't think the countries, I mean, I can particularly speak for Qatar, not so much for the UAE and others, Um, uh, we're not really giving them credit for what they're doing. They learn, they have an immense capacity for learning very quickly. And while a few years ago, safeguarding didn't seem to feature at all in their understanding, it does now. And while Safeguarding in European COVID schools or British international schools is reasonably straightforward. While these things might be called differently, they're more or less the same as it is in the UK. So let's not kick ourselves there. So it's really quite tight and you have a good network there. That is not so much the case here. However, they are very, very fast and very much very conscious that it's necessary and they are proactive in building it. It is mainly a problem. We are doing safeguarding in exactly the same way in the UK as it is in the UK. There is uh, stringent training for safer recruitment. There is training. Every new staff is being trained. There are top-up trainings all the time. Uh, there is a schedule for that. The central register is kept uh, it is kept up to date. and is, uh, It, it, it ha- ticks all the boxes that it does in the UK. We are inspected by British International School, well, BSO, okay. Inspectorate. And that's all being checked. The problem in international schools outside Europe comes when there is a safeguarding issue, and let's face it, there's nothing wrong with a school having a safeguarding issue every now and again in fact i strongly i strongly advocate, well, I, would say, I, I, I strongly feel. If a school says we have no safeguarding issue, um, they are simply denying it, closing, you know, shutting their eyes, but, and it, because that is, it happens every now and again. So if a safeguarding issue happens here in the Middle East, that is dealt with in exactly the same way, as a designated team member of staff, it's, the procedures are exactly the same as in the UK. It is problematic when you have to call in national systems like, in the UK, social services. You make a phone call and you're being looked after. It can be passed on. That's when it gets tricky. There's only recently have they established a, and let's call it an equivalent, but it is early days. It's very much in its infancy and you don't quite get the support that you want. We are, as a school, as uh, as our college, and I know al and uh, and St. Christopher's in Bachelain or uh, or Dubai College do it in a similar way because we are heads and we are committed to safeguarding. We need to find a way out. We're using consultants back in the UK and we're also using the British Embassy, which, of course, Ed, works perfectly fine for Brits. But don't forget, (laughs) we have, yeah, well, uh, the majority of our children are British, but fact is, a, a sizable minority you know we have far over 2000 students at dow college and so a sizable minority is yeah. 700 students are of 80 different nationalities which the british embassy is not so interested in yeah. and uh, once and you can't easily these nationalities they are southeast asian they are um, uh, whatnot not, it is you can't easily just access these networks. So it is a complication, yes, but we do use um, sort of consultancy services back in the UK and make it really as safe as it can be. There is, I, I can easily put my hand on my heart and say, for the parents of Doma College, these children are safe, and that is exactly the same at other PSO-inspected British schools in the Middle East and other countries. Even though the system beyond the school, where the country needs to kick in, like the equivalents for social services, are different in these countries and often, you know, not anywhere near as efficient as they as they would be in the
0: UK. Stephen, um, very quickly, one last question: um, Could you just tell me whether the blockade of um, Qatar has affected you in any way? Very briefly.
1: Well, it would be silly uh, to say it hasn't affected us. Of course it's affected us. But uh, Doha College is a very, very popular school. We've got very, I mean, we're only, we're in the process of opening our new campus. It's only just been finished. And uh, we're just planting the trees and doing the grass and all that and going through civil defense and all these kind of things. But the campus is finished and we're offering many more places for next year. But we will still have very long waiting lists. The reason why I'm mentioning that, that is how it's affected us. Uh, We haven't lost students. On the contrary, our waiting lists are just as long and in many ways longer than they they were before. But Mm -hmm. it has affected us, and I'll tell you why, how. Um, When the blockade came in uh, about three years ago, um, what we noticed, we never lost students in any which way, but we lost the highest, we had the highest number of students ever leaving Doha College in that year. Because Mm -hmm. so many people were made redundant, and that is including parents at dewa College. They've lost their jobs. Yeah, Nobody ever leaves Dewar College. They're so happy to have a place at dewa College. They don't leave. They only leave. Well, they only leave when they leave the country. So yeah. when, of course, uh, 700 students' parents are losing their jobs, are being mm. transferred back to their country, you all of a sudden, in one go, lose 700 children. Now, to put it into context, it isn't as dramatic as you might think, but because we are losing 300 every year anyway, because you know it's a rolling over, that is, that is no problem. Now, while it took no time at all, Ed, to play, replenish those, uh, I was very concerned. And I give you a reason why I was concerned, because it's not only about having a full school. We are a top school. And a top school doesn't just happen. A top school is a top school because it has a top school DNA. That DNA needs... Working on it needs cultivating, and a dilution of it is not a problem because normally we uh, we regenerate very quickly. But to that degree, I was very worried about not about not being able to fill the seven hundred places. I was worried about the dilution that we call. But we managed it really, really well in the concerted efforts. That's true, and the college was no. In fact, it was stronger than ever before afterwards. And we learned the lesson because we learned the lesson that actually a growth for Doha College, which is exactly what we are going through now with a new campus, is actually possible. And we can take in a huge number of new students as long as we are making sure that where these students are going, there is enough um, um, uh, old DNA around that, uh, that they will be inducted and that they will learn the ropes very quickly of how we do things at Doha College, not only as far as teachers are concerned, but also the students, and most, most importantly the students
0: most importantly in the students what a lovely way to finish um, Dr Stefan Sommer thank you so much for your time thank you for listening not at all, thank you